Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Tudors episode 121 and the sixth installment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in July. A very warm welcome to Gail, Victoria, Mitty, Leslie, Natalia, E.R. Lanson, Megan, Pam, Denise, KJ, welcome to April, Julia, Jessica, Christina, Megan and LBM Ross. I'm so very grateful and thankful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is an absolutely stunning portrait miniature of Catherine of Aragon, painted by Roland Hoy, and a Tudor Queen's motto bracelet. A huge thank you to Roland and Shira for sponsoring this amazing prize. If you head to my Instagram page, you'll see photos of this incredible package. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Mary the First and her legacy is Johanna Strong. Johanna is a PhD student at the University of Winchester, under the supervision of Dr. Ellie Woodacre and Dr. Simon Sandal. Tentatively titled The Making of a Queen, The Effect of Religion, National Identity and Gender on Mary I's Legacy in the English Historical Narrative, Johanna's PhD thesis will examine the way in which Mary's legacy was posthumously created and how this legacy has been perpetuated. She completed her MA at Queen's University in Canada under the supervision of Dr. Jeffrey Collins. My conversation with Johanna is coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Johanna. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm really looking forward to our chat today. Now, I suppose it's it's really good to start with an introduction. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Um, so I, as you've probably guessed from an accent, 
um, am Canadian and did my first two degrees in Canada at Queen's University and focused my master's research on female monarchy in England. And so was looking at John Knox, the wonderful, enlightened writer that he is, um, was looking at him and at Henry Howard, who is one of the quasi-Catholic aristocracy. And so looking at their two perspectives on female monarchy. And then I had promised myself in my master's that I would not do an intellectual history on men. And that is exactly what I ended up doing by accident. And so I said for my PhD, I want to focus on the Queens. And so I was looking at all sorts of universities and decided that I would come to the University of Winchester. And so I'm doing my PhD now on Mary I and on how we remember her in the historical narrative and looking at how she's remembered, especially in the English and British historical narratives. Fantastic. And before we dive in and, and look a little bit more at Mary's image, I'd love to know when and why you first became interested in this area of study. Absolutely. And um, so I think it, it all started when I was very small. My parents, I guess, decided that my sister and I were too young to go with them to England. And so they went on a, a holiday and came back with more than a postcard, I would assume. But all I remember is the postcard that they got me that was Henry in the middle with his wives around him. And I thought, there's got to be more to this. And so by the time I was six, I had to go for extended allergy tests. And the instruction for a kid was bring something to do while you wait for these tests to be run. And I asked my parents to read to me a nonfiction book about Henry VIII, I guess as every six-year-old does. And so that kind of started it. And it was just something that really, really interested me. And then when I got to undergrad and, and realized you can actually do this as a career. <laughs> and so I think what struck me in undergrad was that everyone talks about Henry VIII and everyone talks about Elizabeth I, but there's this other queen who's in there. And everything that I had read, save a few works, had been very negative. And I thought, well, that's, you know, nobody or very few people are purely one-dimensionally bad. And so I thought there's, there's got to be more behind this. And so I started researching a bit into Mary. And then when I got to my master's and started looking at more of, of the narratives around her, then I thought for the PhD, that's what I want to do. And thought, well, there have been so many revisionist works recently about her reign. So I thought, well, how, how do we make this jump? How do we make the jump from her reign to how she's remembered in 2021? And so I thought, you know, that's what I'll look at. I'll look at how her image and memory has been manipulated and used. So I guess it, it started as a, a small six-year-old and here we are. <laughs> Oh, I love that story. I love that you were wanting nonfiction Tudor stuff at the age of six. That's just absolutely brilliant. And and it is fantastic to see this resurgence in interest of late in Mary because, it, as you say, she's often the one that's kind of, oh, no, we'll just go for her, her half-sister or her father or one of her stepmothers or something like that. So I think that's really positive. Let's look a little bit at Mary's life. Could you tell us a little bit about her life, her upbringing, uh, maybe something that struck you during your research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so she's born in February 1516 to Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. And she is, I think, unfortunately for Catherine, the only child who survives infancy of their marriage. And Henry is a little, I think, disappointed that she's a girl. You know, he's hoping for the son. But when that doesn't happen he, he almost acknowledges Mary as, you know, she, she could grow up to be someone important. And so she gets this fantastic education and she gets a very humanist education. So she's reading the latest works. She's reading in multiple languages. And she is, you know, as Henry famously calls her, she is the king's pearl. He is very fond of her. And there gets to a point 
I think as we famously know, uh, in the late 1520s, when Anne Boleyn comes on the scene and things get to start things start to get a little shaky for Mary. And she, in a, in a good way for her, really sticks to her guns and goes, no, I am Catholic. I am the rightful heir. And Catherine of Aragon is the only queen. And so she, throughout the annulment proceedings, sticks to that. And I think very early on shows that she has what it takes to be a queen in her own right. And so... She comes from this really good childhood in the lap of luxury and then goes through the annulment and is kind of pushed aside a little bit in favor of what Henry hoped would be a son. But the pregnancy turned out to be Elizabeth I. And so throughout those few years when Anne and Henry are married, it's a little dicey for Mary. Um, but it gets, I guess, it increasingly better not the best but better as it goes through the rest of the wives and mary is taken back to court and famously under Catherine Parr, the children are all reunited uh, and there's that semblance of a, a happy family as happy as i think royalty under pressure can be and then when it gets to edward the reign he is very protestant and he takes the reformation that Henry had started and just runs with it. And Mary throughout his reign goes, I, I can't do that. I need to be a good Catholic. And so to a certain extent, Edward somewhat overlooks that. But when it begins to be an issue, he pressures her of, you know, you really can't hear mass. You know, what does it look like if the king's closest family members are outwardly rejecting his authority. And so that gets, you think, quite tense. And she kind of just dissolves into the background a bit and goes, well, I'm just going to live quietly and, you know, wait this out. And so when it comes that she gets to power, I think that's where we see she has these opportunities to, in a sense, correct what she thinks has gone wrong with England. And so she takes that opportunity to go back a little bit and and to write the wrongs that she perceives came out of her parents annulment and then the the move in England to be ultra Protestant and she tries to temper that it's fascinating that Mary of course opted to keep a low profile during Edward's reign and then we see Elizabeth do the exact same thing during Mary's reign and and the other thing that strikes me is just the the many years that she endured really challenging times really from about the middle of the 1520s until she became queen that's yeah that's quite amazing what a story and we are focusing today's conversation on her legacy so we're going to jump forward to 1553 mary tudor became the first anointed queen regnant of england so did the public welcome her accession yeah that's i think one of my favorite things to talk about with her reign is that even though we come to see this negative portrayal of her reign, that at the time, most people are actually very much in favor. So there's that little, I think in hindsight, we can call it a hiccup. Um, but Lady Jane Grey is announced queen at Edward VI's death. And everyone, I think Mary included, goes, hold on a second. That's not how this works. And so there's the faction around Jane Grey who goes, no, no, she is the queen now. You have to respect her. But the majority of the country goes, that's, that's not what was in Henry VIII's will. And so what's interesting is that throughout Edward VI's reign, Henry VIII's settlement and his, his act of succession is still the only legal succession on the books in Parliament. And so when Edward VI writes his device for the succession and puts Lady Jane Grey on the throne, people go, you know, hang on, that hasn't been approved by Parliament. You can't just decide what's happening. And so many people rise up for Mary. And so she is at Framlingham and she essentially raises her troops and goes, I'm the queen. We're going to march on London. That's my capital. And so what's interesting is that we see even Protestants who are against, in a sense, Lady Jane Grey's reign. And they go, we know she's Protestant. We know she's going to be, you know, who we want as 
the head of the church, but that's not right. And so the country essentially rises up in Mary's favor and goes, that's who Henry VIII wanted to succeed Edward if Edward didn't have children. And so there's this massive groundswell of support for her, even though there's fear of, you know, how does a woman rule? How does a woman rule when she doesn't have a husband to counsel her and give her guidance? But everyone kind of goes, she's the queen. We just have to let this happen. I think it's really interesting that we come to see it as such a, oh, no one wanted Mary. She kind of got there by mistake. But in fact, there's this this massive popularity of Mary that she is the true monarch. And her entry into London as queen is fantastically celebratory, which I think is, is often in contrast to how it's portrayed now. Yes, and famously had Elizabeth with her too, didn't she, at that point? Yeah, she certainly knew how, I think, to, to use her power and to use the public perception of her power and to know, you know, it's, it's too early to make enemies in her reign and harnessing that, you know, here are the two surviving children together is, is another, sense, good PR move on her part. Because even if there are Protestants who are unsure about Mary, you know, you, you can't really boo Mary if Elizabeth is next to her. Exactly. I think it was a very, very clever move. And I, I do love how it shows how important order was. I think the people saw that putting Lady Jane Grey on the throne was a disruption of the correct order of things. And, you know, that disruption, I think, in a way means chaos. And so they're trying to avoid that chaos by following the order, even if she's possibly not their first choice in terms of a religious um, head of state. But it's, yeah, it's very, very, very interesting. Now, of course, Mary at some point for various reasons decides that she's going to take a husband and she marries Prince Philip of Spain in 1554. So we've talked about the fact that her accession was welcomed, you know, kind of with open arms and it was quite popular. What about this marriage? How did people feel about her husband? As, as popular as she was going into London when she's proclaimed queen, I think the opposite almost happens here. Because there is a great fear of this foreign influence and this, especially for the early modern mind, where you know men are superior to women and a woman shouldn't rule if she has a husband, she should let the husband do the monarchical power. And so there's this, this fear that if Philip II comes in, he's essentially going to make England part of the Spanish empire. And so we have what's now called Wyatt's Rebellion. So Wyatt essentially rises up in early 1554 and has a group around him. And their plan is to march to London. And they have little camps throughout England, who are all going to converge on London at the same time. And where essentially his plan was that he was going to kidnap the queen and forcibly confine her to convince her that she should not marry Philip. And this is a terrible idea. And so obviously Mary goes, no way, this is my throne. You're not taking it from me. And so when Wyatt raises his troops to march on London, she kind of goes into survival mode in a sense. And we see a kind of a republication and a re-popularizing of the marriage treaty and of the negotiations and the decisions that they've made that basically Mary repeats to the public that even though Philip is a prince and is technically because he's a man in the early modern world technically is above her, she repeats that, you know, he's not going to be king. He will be a king consort in a sense. So he will have no authority in England. He will have to have English subjects in his household. He will not be able to hold castles or forts. So he essentially has been stripped of his political power and has been stripped of his military power. And Mary then goes, like, I... I will be queen the same way that I was queen before I got married. She, in a sense, mitigates this fear. And as Wyatt and his rebellion starts to move toward London, the support for him just fades away. 
And so he eventually gets to London and realizes the city is essentially boarded up against him. The bridges into the city are closed and they are very much a barrier to his entry. And Mary gives her perhaps less famous than a Tilbury speech for Elizabeth I, but essentially gives the same sort of speech at the Guildhall in London and basically says, like, I, I am your queen. You will protect me. I have your best interests at heart. And the interesting thing that sticks out for me is we always picture Elizabeth I as the virgin queen. She's married to her kingdom or her realm. And at the Guildhall speech in 1554, Mary essentially does the same thing. And she goes, you know, I've, I've never been a mother, so I don't know what motherhood feels like, but I think it feels like the love I have for my subjects. And so she basically pulls the, I am your mother and I will take care of you. Wyatt's rebellion famously ends terribly. It does not stop the marriage. It does not stop the wedding. And it ends up in, I think, the first maybe quote unquote merciful part of Mary's reign in that she has this opportunity to punish every single person who had risen up with Wyatt. And instead she only goes after the, the leaders and says, I'll make an example of them, but I will not punish everyone. And so we have this really interesting negotiation of, you know, how does she be a queen with a king consort And how does she become a wife when the wife is kind of the second half of a marriage in the early modern world? And then we have this negotiation of power. And so I think it's it's a really interesting move that she spins to her advantage, that it starts out as everyone is, is afraid. And she has somehow lessened these fears so that by the end, everyone goes, okay, I mean, I guess it can't be that bad. Um, so there's, there's still, when the Spanish ambassadors arrive, there are stories in the Chronicle of Queen Jane, which was written, surprisingly for the, the title, is written during Mary's reign. And it, it tells of the ambassadors being pelted with snowballs by the London subjects, and that they're just not thrilled that he's there. But the marriage goes ahead anyway. And then we see this resurgence of hope when Mary announces that she's pregnant, there's very much a roller coaster of emotions about mm. the marriage. But I think it it starts off rocky and then gets more hopeful and then eventually kind of goes on that last little bit of the roller coaster. And everyone, I think, is is looking towards Elizabeth at that point. Wow, I can absolutely see why you're fascinated by her and her reign. There was so much in that. Really, really interesting. Now, obviously, Elizabeth does, in fact, come to the throne after her sister's death. So how did the Elizabethans interpret and write about Mary's reign? And what sort of aspects did they focus on? Yeah, so the the big one during Elizabeth's reign is this focus on marriage and the focus on religious persecution. So we see the first major work that in a sense hits the proverbial bookshelves is John Fox's Acts and Monuments, um, more popularly known as the Book of Martyrs. And this is essentially a work which he decides is going to lay out Christian martyrdom from the beginning of Christianity until his present day. But it's mostly a focus on Mary. So he has a little bit at the beginning about all of the other persecution, but the majority of the work focuses on Mary's reign. And what's I think especially interesting in that is he has woodcuts throughout. So essentially the first illustrations and he has as many woodcuts for the five years of Mary's reign as he has for the previous 1500 years of Christianity. And so during Elizabeth's reign, his work is ordered to be put in all cathedral churches. So we have every single cathedral in England has an English copy of the Bible and Fox's Acts and Monuments. So his work is read essentially in conjunction with the Bible. Those are the two foundational texts in Elizabethan cathedrals. The way that he portrays the religious persecution as martyrdoms and as 
a sense, here's this, this darkness associated with Mary's reign. And then here's the light that comes when Elizabeth comes to the throne. And so we see that almost in a way that Fox is writing about Elizabeth's reign and saying, you know, look how good she is. Look at how she's not persecuting her subjects. And so it becomes this reflection on Elizabeth's reign, but it has to happen through Mary's reign so that Fox doesn't get in trouble with Elizabeth. And we also see a big focus in his work on Mary's, especially her first pregnancy. And I think the story that sticks with me is one that he shares and then is reshared by other chroniclers. And it's the story of Isabel Malt, who at the same time that Mary was pregnant, I guess that's a caveat there that the first pregnancy, obviously we can't go back. There aren't ultrasound images. There will not be the nice little fridge magnet to go like, here's the baby at however many weeks in utero. So we don't know if it was a pregnancy. It could have been a multitude of things. It could have been an illness of a physical tumor. It could have been a phantom pregnancy, which has a very fancy medical term that is slipping my mind right now, but essentially where the body mimics a pregnancy without the growth of a baby. We're not sure if it's actually a pregnancy. It's very hard to, in retrospect, diagnose this, but she firmly believes that it is a pregnancy. And so I think many of us say, okay, we'll just, we'll call it a pregnancy to make it easier for everyone else. So Fox focuses on this first pregnancy and tells the story of Isabel Malt, who is pregnant at the same time and who gives birth to a healthy baby boy. And the story is, according to Fox, that agents of the queen come and basically tell Isabel that if you swear that you've never had this child, that you you know, did not give birth, that it was a miscarriage, you know, make up whatever you want, but you did not have this baby. We will take him and we will provide a very good home for him. And so very early on, we get this idea of almost the swapped at birth scandal that even though Mary comes out of that confinement without a baby, there's still this rumor that is, is churned up in Elizabeth's reign that, well, maybe she did, she didn't have a baby, but then swapped it and, oh goodness, what could have happened? And so this fear that we see, especially in Fox, is a fear of, well, what if? It's not really a fear of what did happen. It's a fear of, well, what could have happened if the religious persecution had continued? If Mary had gotten pregnant and had successfully carried a baby to term. And then that fear of, well, what if she carried a boy to term? And so it's these fears of things that never happened and now couldn't happen because Elizabeth was on the throne and Mary was dead. But there's still fears that that are being clung onto in the Elizabethan era. And I think the other big one that we see is the Elizabethan perception on marriage and on Mary's marriage. And what's interesting here is that there's a very clear divide between Elizabeth and her counselor's perspective on Mary's marriage and the popular perception of Mary's marriage. Um, because Elizabeth I and her counselors, essentially the, the regime, see Mary's marriage treaty with Philip II as a starting point. So they take that those negotiations and that treaty and they say that that's the starting point for our negotiations. And so we see the regime, in a sense, condoning Mary's marriage and saying, you know, it was done in the best way possible for England. Let's copy that. But then we have the popular perception of Mary's marriage, which is basically that it was the worst thing that had ever happened. And so we get books published like the discovery of a gaping gulf, which is basically a book that outlines, well, Mary married Philip II, and that was awful, but that was only Spain. And so it, it lays out, you know, well, we thought Spain was bad, but France is even worse. And now Elizabeth is, is planning to marry a French prince. And so it, it lays out that fear of, yes, 
Mary had mitigated that male power quite well, but it comes in in the Elizabethan era as, oh my gosh, no, this is much, much worse. And how could she ever do this to us? And what plays an interesting role in that is religion, because by the time that Elizabeth is in negotiations with France for marriage, the Holy League has been created, which is, is essentially a political alliance of the Catholic European powers. And so what the discovery of a gaping gulf kind of clings on to is that while Mary may have married Spain, that's one thing. But now Elizabeth isn't only marrying France, she's going to be marrying every other Catholic power who is in that alliance. And so it becomes this ingrained fear that England will just become subservient to a Catholic political alliance. And so there's that massive divide between the people essentially being afraid that Elizabeth is signing England's independence away. And then the regime and Elizabeth herself who go, Mary's marriage was a good precedent. Let's use it. You know, why rewrite the books? I think most of these perspectives that we get in the Elizabethan era are from Fox and from works like The Discovery, which look back and are essentially judging Mary in a negative way in order to raise up Elizabeth, which is so complicated and so complex, but it's it's such an interesting perspective. Yeah, so, so fascinating. And so, and that's a great title, by the way, The Discovery of a Gaping Gulf. That's so cool. I don't think I'd ever heard of that one. So who's the author of that one? I was trying to think. I was looking through my notes and I wonderfully forgot to write down who had written it. <laughs> okay, don't worry, all good. We, I will definitely look it up. So apart from those two works, are there any others that you want to mention or are they sort of the main ones during Elizabeth's time? Uh, those are, I think, the main ones. The other big one is Paul and Shed's Chronicle, which is a, a chronicle by definition lays out kind of the chronology of a set period of time. And so his work really looks at essentially all of the, to this point, English monarchs. And so he is laying out, you know, here's Henry VIII's reign, and here's Edward VI, then here's Mary's. And his work is very much influenced by his Elizabethan environment. Essentially, under Elizabeth, you can't really praise Catholicism because Catholicism is becoming increasingly a political threat because Elizabeth is excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in 1570. She has a rebellion in the North that is essentially the, the Catholic aristocracy and Catholic subjects rising against her. Hollinshed's Chronicle really is, I think, a, a victim to this because, in a sense, Hollinshed and his co-authors have to denigrate Mary. And so it becomes this really interesting work of it on the surface is supposed to be a neutral work. But as you start reading it, you realize, oh, like the footnote here says, if you want to read more, go see Fox. <laughs> I think Fox isn't a neutral source in this. And so it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, as it's written and as recollections are made about Mary's reign, all of those memories are influenced by what's happening in Elizabeth's reign. And so it's interesting to compare that to works like the Chronicle of Queen Jane, which was written as events are happening. So you don't know that Mary's going to die four years later. And so it's, it's interesting to take those perspectives of, you know, how do people, as it's happening, perceive it versus Hollinshed and his co-authors who come at it 20 to 30 years later and are going, how do I remember this? And they write it essentially in hindsight. And it's what historians of memory would call a diachronic perspective because we like fancy words. Um, <laughs> I like that one. I'm going to write it down. Diachronic. <laughs> diachronic. And it essentially is that history progresses to meet, you know, the, the final ultimate goal. Hollinshed, in a sense, uses this diachronic perspective, which is basically just hindsight, that he knows that Elizabeth I comes to the throne 
And he knows that these crypto Catholic and Catholic English subjects are in his mind, a threat to Elizabeth. And so he writes his history knowing that that's how it ends up. So he kind of backtracks and works that threat of Catholicism all the way through. And so it's, it's interesting just to see how much the Chronicles tell us, but then how much we can't take them at face value. So, so true. And I think there's that tendency to just read the story of the Tudors backwards, isn't there? We can't help it. We just, we know how it ends. So we, we start at the end and we go in reverse and, and that's not always the best way to kind of understand these characters, I don't think. But now we can't have a conversation about Mary's legacy without, of course, touching on the nickname that I'm sure all our listeners have heard of, Bloody Mary. I'd love if you could talk to us a little bit about this. When did it emerge? Do you think she deserves this reputation that we've seen plastered on, you know, uh, book covers and, and other things all over the internet? You just have to look up Mary and it comes up Bloody Mary. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think this is one of my biggest pet peeves for poor Mary is that she's seen as this, this bloody figure. And I was looking up the precise date because I knew I had written it down. And Alexander Sampson, who was one of the, the big Marian scholars, has recently, I think 2020, has recently published Mary and Philip, The Marriage of England and Spain. And he credits the first use of Bloody Mary to 1658. And so this is in the middle of the interregnum. This is in the middle of Charles I has been executed in 1649. And Charles II will, I guess, officially come back to the English throne in 1660. So 1658, according to Samson, is the first time that we see this used. Though in Fox, we have her reign referred to as bloody. And so we have the bloody reign of Mary. But it's not until the reigns of Charles II and then James VII and II that we really see this kind of the reign of drop out and go, well, it's just Bloody Mary. And what's, I think, really interesting about that is this Bloody Mary nickname grows as anti-Catholicism grows. So we see it emerge in Charles II's reign. And Charles II, there's the rumors that exist that he was a crypto-Catholic. So he, on the, the out word facing side of monarchy was a good Church of England boy, but on the inside was Catholic. And so we have these stories of his deathbed conversion to Catholicism. And so that understandably for a Protestant country to have a king on his deathbed convert away from Protestantism, we see that growth of, oh no, like what, what are the other Catholic influences that have happened on the monarchy? And people naturally turn back to the last Catholic monarch, who's Mary. And so as fears of Catholic monarchy grow, they increasingly turn to these memories of Mary's reign to go, well, remember last time we had a Catholic monarch? It didn't go well. Let's not do it again. And so when James, the son of Scotland, second of England, comes to the throne, he is unapologetically Catholic. Everyone kind of knows that he's Catholic. He has married a Catholic bride. And so there comes what seems to be a, a second Mary, in a sense, that there is another Catholic on the throne. The Church of England is again under threat. And so this Bloody Mary nickname grows because it's, it's an easy way to critique the current monarch without actually going, well, that's bloody James, because that will get you executed for treason. <laughs> but critiquing a previous monarch is, in a sense, safe space, especially because there is that separation between the Stuarts and the Tudors. It's not the same as someone in Elizabeth's reign critiquing Mary because they were sisters. This is, you know, a, a cousin. And so it's much easier to critique Mary. And then I think it just kind of sticks. It's, it's one of these that it just rolls off the tongue. It has all of the great, greats, maybe not the best word. It has all of the imagery behind it. And it just gets stuck in people's minds. 
And then as we get into the Victorian era, you know, skipping ahead hundred or so years, we have the Catholic emancipation in the 1830s. And so Catholics, again, are being allowed to practice Catholicism openly. And so many see that as a threat to the Protestant identity of England. And so this Bloody Mary nickname sticks because she's, you know, she's been dead for 300 years, but she's still a threat that continues. And I think it just sticks because it's, it's existed for so long. It begins to go unchallenged and it just becomes accepted as fact, which is one of the hard things I find in doing this, this PhD topic is when you try to explain your topic to someone who isn't in the early modern field and they go, oh, Mary. So Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh, no, 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 not that Mary. And they go, oh, bloody Mary. And you just go, oh, yes, yes. bloody Mary. <laughs> oh, why did you make me do this? <laughs> and I, I think that's, it's something that's just caught and it's, it's been caught in popular culture as well. I remember, I guess this will be a, a promo for another wonderful history channel that Dan Snow's history hit sells tea towels and he has some of Napoleon. He has some of Marie Antoinette eating cake for the famous let them eat cake, which she never said. And the one for Mary is a Bloody Mary tea towel. And me going, this is research. I need to find out. And I was so ready to be so angry about it. But I clicked the tea towel and it's the famous Moore portrait of Mary sitting very nicely And on her lap are all of the ingredients to make the Bloody Mary cocktail. And I thought, this is acceptable. But I think it's it's something that's just become so ingrained in our our popular imagination that she is Bloody Mary, even though I think she certainly doesn't deserve that. And I think what's interesting is that apart from very few people who have written articles on what they've termed Bloody Bess, Mary isn't any worse than her father or her brother or her sister. Edward VI, I guess, lucky for him, uh, died before he could reinstitute his policies for heresy. But essentially, that legislation was going to reintroduce the burning of of Catholics, not Protestants. And so essentially anything that was seen as heretical, so not being Protestantism as Edward VI thought it should be practiced. Anything that was heretical would be punished by burning. But Edward dies before this, he can put the royal seal on it. And so it never comes into play. So then when Mary picks it up, she's very much building on the framework that Edward had set. She just kind of scratches out Catholics and goes, well, it's, it's going to be for Protestants because the heresy is Protestantism. And so when we see Mary in that, that perspective, that chain of monarchy, it's not unusual. In no, in no way is that a, you know, a, a condoning of going out and executing people for religious beliefs. But that's something that in the early modern Western European world is normal. And obviously it's not something we would condone today and not something that we would do today. But we see it in Spain um, with the Inquisition. That's obviously a, a big movement where they're trying to get heresy and nip it in the bud. And I think that that growth of because Edward didn't live long enough to institute the policy, Mary gets seen as this outlier. And because her policies for heresy are similar relatively to Spain and the Inquisition, she gets linked to that horror to Protestant minds of the Inquisition. And then when Elizabeth comes to the throne, she, in a sense, picks I guess, a, a better PR move in how she deals with it because she frames Catholicism as a political threat to her reign. And so she and her counselors and parliament essentially pass legislation that says being a Catholic is treason because you've sworn loyalty to the Pope, not the Queen as head of the Church of England. 
being a Catholic then is not punished under heresy laws. It's punished under treason laws. And when you frame it as treason, well, that that seems normal to punish treason. It's a threat to the monarchy. And so we can't really compare the number of quote unquote heretics executed under Mary and Elizabeth's reigns. Because if we look at the people executed under the heresy laws, there's going to be a massive difference. But if we took the number of people out of the treason laws under Elizabeth and looked at how many of those are religious, that starts to be a better comparison. Elizabeth, I think, just cleverly knew that the best way to go about this and and her counselors knew the best way to go about this is to do it as treason because you can't question an execution for treason. That's so clever because it suddenly brings in everyone, doesn't it? If it's treason, then it's a threat to the entire nation, Catholic, Protestant, anything else you are, whereas heresy immediately divides and polarizes. So another clever move by Elizabeth there, I have to say. Um, so you you touched on briefly the Victorians and, and, you know, the fact that this name persisted through that period. What about some other common sort of representations of Mary? How did they change throughout the centuries? I think the, the big one that I've been looking at recently, we kind of fill in the gap between the Elizabethans and the Victorians. We have the Stuart dynasty and then the Hanoverians. Um, so the big, big work of James VI and First's reign is a work called Vox Coily. So translates word for word of kind of voice from the skies or voice from heaven. And it's subtitled News from Heaven. And it's written by John Reynolds. And it's written in response to the Spanish match. And so the Spanish match is in the 1610s and early 1620s. James VI and I is negotiating a marriage between one of his sons. It begins with Prince Henry, but then Prince Henry dies quite unexpectedly. And so Charles, the future Charles V, is slotted in instead of Henry. And they are in negotiations to marry them, one of them, to the Infanta Maria of Spain. And so we see this Vox Coily work. Mary is used in it as essentially a spokesperson for Spain. So it's a work that loosely is a conversation between all sorts of deceased monarchs and consorts in heaven. And so there's Edward VI, there's Henry VIII, there's Elizabeth I, there's Anna of Denmark, who's James VI and I's wife, and then their child, Prince Henry. And so all of these figures speak against this marriage. And Mary kind of rolls in and goes, well, wasn't that bad when I married Philip? And, you know, this is just what Spain wants to do. And so she becomes the spokesperson for England's enemy, in a sense. We see that representation in James's reign as Mary is this, this anti-Protestant, anti-England figure. And then that grows through to the Victorian era. And the Victorian era really is influenced, I think, by that... Jacobean perspective. And then as we go through, I think we also see often Mary is either in the Victorian era shown as this bloody Mary or as a tragic Mary. And so the other big work is the Strickland sisters who have their work on the monarchs and princesses of Britain. And they take, in a sense, they take Mary and make her this tragic figure. And that is almost in direct contrast to the famous Delaroche portrait of Lady Jane Grey's execution. And so in the Victorian era, we have these two competing ideas of Mary, one that is inherited from earlier centuries that is basically Mary you know, ordered the execution of this young girl and she wasn't in the wrong. And, you know, this is the Bloody Mary of legend. And the other is this idea that, you know, maybe Mary was just intensely unhappy. Maybe she just wasn't 
having a good time and we shouldn't judge her so harshly. So we get those two that are in competition with each other. I think the ideas of religious persecution, the ideas of her marriage, the ideas of her pregnancy all fit really neatly into both of those categories. Because one, in in the Bloody Mary side, you can see the marriage as, you know, Mary did this on purpose to subjugate England to Spain. But then if you look at it from the tragic side, we get the story of, you know, she married Philip and then he was only there for a little while and then he left and he never came back. And the only time he did was to ask money to go to war. So we get these same themes through her reign being used for such different ends as we go through. And so I think it's it's the interesting thing. And I've, I've split my PhD thesis along those lines of religion, national identity. So kind of that English identity, how England sees itself. And then the gendered factors, those continue to be the three main themes that go through history about Mary. But the way that they're used, I guess, and, and abused and manipulated vary quite vastly between who's writing and why they're writing. It must be a very difficult job that you've got when you're looking at all these different sources and coming from all different centuries, because of course, they're a reflection of the society in which they were created. And so you must spend a lot of time kind of reflecting on, okay, what's going on here? What's the context? What's, um, what are they trying to gain from this? Um, how do you kind of, how do you get through that? Uh, a lot of it is kind of reading around the topic. And so knowing for works that come out, say in 1605, that are very anti-Mary, the context kind of from November on, the context is the gunpowder plot and that fear of Catholicism. And so a lot of what I end up doing is, you know, here are the historical pieces that mention Mary or who use Mary in their telling of history. And then needing to put that into a bigger perspective of, you know, for Victorian works in the 1830s, as Catholic emancipation happens, of course, Mary is going to be seen more negatively because Catholicism has just been re-allowed. And so it's, it's a lot of looking at what else is going on because no one comes, as much as we try, nobody comes to a historical event or a historical source without any preconceived ideas or any kind of pre-internalized ideas of history. And so the same goes for people under James VI the first who are looking at history. The same goes for the Victorians, that they're greatly influenced by the world around them in the same way that part of Alexander Sampson's work, in a sense, describes Mary at one point as, you know, the, the last Romaniac. Um, to put it in kind of Brexit terms, is she's the last one who goes, we need to have them on our side. And so the way that we see Mary in the 2010s and now 2020s is deeply influenced by how England and English identity sees its relationship with the continent. There's so much of our conceptions that come to this history that so much of what I have to do is then separating, okay, what have they written versus what do they mean? Yes. You know, what, what, what are they looking at when they put down their work at the end of the day? What are they walking out into the street to hear as newspaper headlines or as broadside publications? And so a lot of that is trying to separate the political and the religious motivations from you know, what are they actually writing and how was that influenced by how they see themselves? Yeah, not an easy task at all. <laughs> Quite no, exhausting. No. <laughs> um, so I wanted to end our discussion by asking you whether you think that Mary deserves her dark legacy. I think I know the answer to that, but I still want to give you an opportunity just to comment on that um, before we we wrap up. Maybe what would you like to see going forward? I think... I mean, as, as hopefully we've all guessed, um, 100%, I don't think Mary deserves that, that bloody nickname. I think going forward, it would be amazing just for more of her history to be shared. 
I think that's one thing that a lot of the big heritage sites, they're going to make their money off of Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. And so people come expecting those two monarchs. And the more that heritage sites cater to that, I think the more that all of the other pieces in in that history go to the background because they're not going to make money, except for, I think, a handful of people who would go to a site just because it's associated with Mary. You know, she's she's not a selling point. If a heritage site goes, you know, Mary the first stayed here on her progress to London in 1553, they're going to get thousands of letters and emails and phone calls about how could you support a history that is so against you know, it's, it's tyrannical and it's all for religious persecution. And so the more that we don't talk about Mary, the more that she becomes this, an enigma in a sense, and the more she becomes this dark figure that people don't want to talk about. And I think that's one of the, the big things is to put her back into the story and to put her back into the chronology between Henry VIII and Elizabeth I that there are two other monarchs in there that we should be talking about. And I think the the big thing that I would love to see is just Mary's influence on Elizabeth being more out in the open and that influence being less that while Mary showed Elizabeth how not to be a queen, but instead to say the idea of being married to England comes from Mary. The idea of being a mother to subjects comes from Mary. All of Elizabeth's marriage negotiations are based on Mary's. And Mary being the first crowned and anointed queen regnant, she sets the precedent for all of the other queens in their own right that we've had. And so I think that would be a massive step is just to put her back into the history and to start talking about it so that she's not a taboo in a sense. She becomes a, a a normal part of English and British history. Such amazing points that you've brought up, and 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 thank you for sharing those stories about Mary's speech. You know, I'm just sitting here reflecting now, thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's so true. And, you know, so I hope that others listening are going to do the same, and perhaps we can set aside that Bloody Mary nickname and and look at you know what she actually did and all the the good stuff that she did. So the very last thing I promise is the Tudor Queen's takeaway. So I've been asking my guests for something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show. So do you have a takeaway for us? Yes, I have picked something that is easily accessible wherever you are in the world. Uh, It does not require a university subscription, which I know has been the bane of many, (laughs) many of our existences during the pandemic and lockdown. And that is the Sheffield Institute. I'm just pulling up so I give you the right information. um, Has essentially digitized the entire acts and monuments that John Fox wrote. And so the URL is very long. So if you just Google John Fox's acts and monuments online, it is a dhi.ac.uk URL. And it is essentially a searchable database of all of Fox's works. And you can pick which edition you'd like to read. And it has all of the images and I think what has been a saving grace for me is that you can do the control F and just search for whatever you want to search for. But I think that less, I think it's, it's more queen adjacent, but that is my, my takeaway is that it's amazing to be able to see the work as it was published and to see it with the woodcuts that it was published with and to see just the size of the work and just to be able to read it without needing to go into an archive, that it's it's all online and easily accessible. That's a fantastic takeaway. And immediately I will add it to my little Word document called digitized manuscripts that I keep on my desktop. And I'm like, yes, I found another one. I pasted it in there so happily. <laughs> so thank you so much. And thank you so much for this conversation. I very much enjoyed it. I, I have a lot to reflect on. So I hope that our listeners do as well. So thank you so much for talking tutors with us. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music